our mentor again this month is Dr. Joseph Michelli, who has been with us several times in the past and also a presenter at the Crown Council's 13th annual event. So uh, not a new face, uh, the face of wisdom and with some great new experience and wisdom that he'll, hear, he'll share with us today. Uh, Dr. Michelli has uh, put his stake in the ground for many, many years as an expert on organizational behavior and consulting in, in helping organizations really develop uh, a great customer service culture. His research has resulted in a number of books. I'll just mention a few. Uh, the Airbnb Way, uh, Driven to Delight, Delivering World-Class Customer Experience, The Mercedes-Benz Way, uh, Leading the Starbucks Way, The Zappos Experience, The Starbucks Experience, uh, The New Gold Standard, Five Leadership Principles for Creating a Legendary Customer Experience, courtesy of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. And I believe your first book, I may be mistaken on this, but uh, I believe the first is When Fish Fly, Lessons for Creating a Vital and Energized Workplace, which you co-authored with the founder of the Pikes Place Fish Market. And that was the first one, correct? That is absolutely correct. All right. So topic of conversation today uh, is uh, Dr. Michelli's latest work that will soon be released entitled Stronger Through Adversity, World-Class Leaders Share Pandemic-Tested Lessons on Thriving During the Toughest Challenges. So you did a lot of research on this one, perhaps maybe more than you have ever done before in terms of the scope of it. So maybe you could share with us for, for starters uh, the, the scope of how much research you did. Who, do, who did you research for this? Well, first I have to say, Steve, that's the nicest way of saying you have an old face by saying <laughs> it's not a new face. Uh, that's really well done. Uh, for the book, I, I was working on a book at the time about Godiva. I'd been a consultant for them, working on their retail chocolate experience. And uh, it was about to go in February to their, their manufacturing plant and it got canceled out of an abundance of caution, right? Uh, and then from there I realized, wow, I, I, I'm not gonna do that book, so better get something else going. Actually, I was on a lot of task forces for my clients in terms of how do we stay relevant to, you know, to customers? What are we gonna do? All the contingencies of going online. And while I was doing those task forces, I was just listening to these leaders and watching them. And some of them were, doing great jobs. Some of them were still doing participatory management and it took too long to get an opinion. And it, it, so from that, I thought, well, I'm going to do a book about how leaders are trying to approach this, what insights they're forming, what they're affirming. And not only did I talk to my clients, but they introduced me to other clients or I'd reach out to people I respected a lot. For example, you, Steve, are in the book uh, and I know you'll be very humble about it, but some great, great pieces of insights from you about leading in a crisis. Um, so anyway, we, we had 140 through uh, the door by the time it was all said and done through the virtual door anyway. And uh, yeah, there are some amazing players. Brian, Cor Brian Cornell, the CEO of Target, uh, Hans Vesberg, the CEO of Verizon, Michelle Gass, the CEO of Kohl's, and the list just goes on with CEOs from Mercedes-Benz and C-suite level people from Lexus and Marriott and 
Microsoft and Google. It's really an extraordinary journey. So what did leaders get right from the interviews that you did? What did you find that the best leaders got right in a crisis? What were their common characteristics of the ones who nailed it straight out of the gate or who figured it out? So I promise I won't be fawning on you anymore, but one of the things I did get right was a piece of wisdom that you, you emphasized. And I still use the metaphor to this day. I mean, they focused on the thing they could control and what they could influence as the things they couldn't. And your metaphor for me, uh, which I, I don't know if I actually got it in the book, but was a, was a, a donut, right? Where the, 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 the uh, kind of fleshier part of the, the doughier part of the donut was uh, was what you can't control and what you could was actually the whole. And so a lot of leaders did get that right. They realized they had a limited locus of control and they needed to execute on that, keep the focus on that, or else you could get so distracted on all the things that were not known or not knowable, let alone influenceable. And so much of that today, I mean, we're, uh, you know, we can say, I guess we're through the worst of it. Who knows what's on the horizon? But in at least in my business experience, probably more unknowns today in terms of just things going on in the marketplace than I've ever seen, at least in my experience with civil unrest, political uncertainty. You still got a pandemic going on. We got economic, we got all kinds of variables here, most of which we cannot control. Absolutely. And I think another one, just in that same vein, was the ability to communicate with consistency and frequency. So I think almost every leader that, that I talked to understood they needed to amp up their communication. Now, that's a double-edged sword because some of them didn't realize they could over-communicate. So one of the lessons that I think was unexpected is that you can over-communicate. It it's less likely than under communicating, but if you just communicate for communication's sake and you don't have a purposeful message, you just clutter an already cluttered environment of noise. So some of these leaders had this cadence of communication, whether they had something to say or not, and they weren't necessarily listening and they weren't necessarily doing anything constructive. So they were just kind of adding to the strain of, just putting something out there. And so I think what we saw was an amping up, which was needed. And then for some, an overreach on the communication, which was something they had to dial back. So would you say that the ones who got it right, they communicated when there was something to communicate? And maybe the ones that had it wrong set up a schedule of, we're going to talk morning, noon, and night, whether we have something to talk about or not. Is that a yeah, and I think, you know, there's probably, there was, the ones who got it right communicated when they had something to communicate and a little bit more. Like, they, they wanted to make sure they weren't deciding they didn't have anything to communicate and then they were out of touch, right? So, but the ones who got it wrong were like on some kind of crazy schedule of obsessive interaction that was getting in the way of their organizations pivoting and doing some of the things that they needed to do. So on the flip side of that, I'd be curious to know, communicating is, you know, is, is a two-way street. It's not just the information you put out, but what you get back. What were the best, the best practices in terms of feedback and listening? Yeah, I did, that. I did the Epictetus uh, example when he said, we have two ears and one mouth, 
and that's uh, proportionality that we should really pay attention to, right? Uh, and leaders there, I think, were actively listening on a couple of different levels. So I have this principle in the book called when the, it basically says when the map and the terrain diverge, go with the terrain. In other words, you may have had a very powerful roadmap going into 2020, but suddenly it wasn't helping you directionally anymore. Your map, your, your vision of the future. So you needed to get closer to the ground and pay attention what was coming at you really rapidly. And that meant lots of pulse surveys. So they were using technology to get information kind of really quickly about your comfort level with X, Y, or Z, both at the customer level and the team member level, as well as engaging in conversation. So uh, one a company that I feature in the book is a client of mine, a, a barbecue restaurant out of the South. And literally they were calling guests because they had the information on guests who had come into online, you know, through online ordering and did a pickup. Those who went through the drive-through, the very few that were still coming in the restaurants when they were at very limited capacity. And they were following up and saying thank you to them. And then they were also saying, what, just tell us anything about what your experience was like, good, bad, or otherwise. We're just here to talk to you. So not only were they using surveys in the traditional scalability kind of way, but they were overtly thanking people for coming in and listening at a level that they would have never done in better times. And it allowed them to be a little ahead of the curve in terms of moves that they made. So what were the, 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 the biggest lessons learned? You know, sometimes we learn from what works. Sometimes we learn more from what, from what doesn't work. What were some of the common lessons learned that, that came out of your research? So Jeff Daly is the CEO of Farmers Insurance, the bump, 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 bump people. And uh, he, uh, he told me that, you know, he didn't think that admitting a mistake of this scale would build employee engagement, but it did. So let me just give you the mistake. His team had come to him and said, look, there's not going to be as much driving going on out there. So we could lower premiums right now and give some of that back to, to the customers. Yeah. And Jeff said, look, there's too many moving parts. I'm a little worried about the long term. I want to I want to stockpile a little of this right now to make sure we can forestall however long this goes. The next week, USAA came out with a reduction to that, them. And he came out very publicly to his team and he said, look, to the organization, he said, my team told me this and I didn't pay attention and I was wrong. We became a fast follower of USAA, but we should have been out ahead. We had that right and I was wrong. And immediately thereafter, his employee engagement scores went up, discretionary effort increased within the course of his work. So I don't, I think that he did not expect that that disclosure would produce that result. And I don't think he disclosed so that that would happen. He disclosed because he just felt like now more than ever, he needed to give people the sense that we don't know what we're doing. We're going to make mistakes, but we have to keep trying with the best of intention. Uh, what other big lessons? Yeah, one that I never saw coming. Uh, here's a lesson. We should follow wild horse herds. Okay. So do you want more or should I? Move? I, I know. It's, it's, oh, good. Please. This is, a, it's kind of like a Steve sort of principle. I thought you would like this. Um, so basically wild horse herds have a, an alpha mare in the front, an alpha sire in the back. And there's a lot of leaders in the pack that shape the behavior of the herd. This kind of came through from a lot of messaging from people that in the pandemic, you could not just be always out front. 
telling them, hey, follow me over that hill, right? right. You couldn't just always be the alpha, uh, the alpha mayor. You also couldn't be in the back like the alpha sire and just keep nudging people along. Sometimes you had to get out front because you, you had to give them some direction. And then sometimes you had to float back into the pack so that you could help shape alongside of so that people felt like you weren't asking them to do things you weren't willing to do. So what, what I really learned, and I don't think I'd ever thought it metaphorically like this, is that the art of leading in a crisis is shifting from front, middle, back, depending upon the circumstances. There were times when you just needed to say to your people, you're out there, I'm here for you, I'll nudge you along, I'll cheer you on, but you need to be out front. And there were other times that they needed you to say, we're taking that hill. And there are many paths, I'm not absolutely certain, but I think this is our best. Do you trust me? Let's take it. And it was interesting to see, and that every leader had a different preference, but effective ones moved in and out situationally. And, and that's a, that one's probably tough to teach. I mean, that's a gut feel when you got to move and when you got to pull back. I mean, I, I don't know if there's any data that would tell you what the right move is. But if you're stuck in one place, you know you're in the wrong you know, you know, I think that was what I really heard is that some people cl were clinging to the front and then they would get messages back from the universe that said you needed to kind of join us because you're you're above us. Right. You're not with us. And so it was interesting to see that humility was also a big lesson uh, and the likelihood to have an optimism bias. So almost all leaders said they minimized. And this is well known from cognitive research that we particularly and, and even specific to pandemics, there's research to show that we tend to believe things are going to go back to normal faster than they will go back to normal. And that there isn't even necessarily a normal on the other side of this thing. There is a different and that different could be a better than normal outcome or it could be a less than normal outcome and a lot of that gets down to how leaders position their organizations for the future so balance that the you know the optimism bias to the flip side of that which is on the front end don't we normally view it to be worse than once we're through it looking back going well i guess it wasn't as bad as we thought is there that as well? Yeah, I think we, you know, as you go through pain, you experience the intensity of the pain, right? And then the pain memory fades. I mean, you still know it was pain. If we kept the same level of pain memory, no woman would ever have a second child, probably. Um, you know, there is that effective forgetting of the degree of pain. Um, we still know it's in the negative balance. But yeah, I think that that's all in there. But, you know, we can catastrophize, we can over optimize that those are natural. And one of the things that these people did that were very effective is they reached out to more and more people to try to balance their ideas, they left their our island of their own world. And it's something I think, you know, I don't know if it was specific to you. But one of the things that was really great about your organization was the community that enabled people to share ideas and where something might be really different for New York than it was in the Dakotas, there was still value in understanding because heaven knows maybe the Dakotas are a little more like New York was back in April, right? Exactly. And there's a little of that that you can learn from. Without 
mentioning any names, did you come across any companies that just bombed? I mean, that, that did not figure it out or figured it out too late or in retrospect said, man, we, we really wish we'd have done it a different way. Any like, without- well, I'm gonna mention names, come on. <laughs> That's no fun not mentioning names. So um, in one chapter, I contrast how StubHub and Airbnb responded to the pandemic. Now, right. both of them are marketplaces. They are brokering the buyer and the seller, Airbnb around housing. And you know, I did a previous book about them. And then StubHub, that's the event space. So somebody's selling a ticket, somebody's buying an event ticket. So StubHub did not credit back the buyers. What they did is they said, we're gonna give you a credit against future uh, concerts at 120% value but we're not gonna give you your money back. Um, the StubHub CEO is no longer at StubHub right now. There's ample lawsuits that are in play. So I don't think this is you know, like some wild, crazy thing that I'm talking about. Airbnb did make the buyer whole. Some of that was at the expense of the seller. So they had to do some reparations on the seller side of the marketplace. But I, you know, I think if you look at the two of them, and you think about the end user experience, you would see that maybe some of those decisions were very business focused, not focused on the actual parties in the marketplace. Fascinating. Um, tell me about leadership, new leadership habits that you found that have been adopted because of lessons learned. Uh, things that are be done, being done now differently than they were pre-COVID that will continue? Well, first, it's just the virtual nature of everything. I mean, I think you have to lead virtually. There were lots of leaders who didn't, who believed unless you were sitting next to me, I could not manage you. So I think we, people have learned you can get great productivity out of people and it isn't where they sit, it's how you inspire them to actually be a high performance team. So that's number one. Uh, that affects things like whether or not we need to build a new building and how important is our physical plant relative to the way in which we engage one another around project management. I think you've seen, you've seen people a rise of the use of collaboration tools online, the rise of the use of, of digital platforms. So all of that's there. I think some of the other leadership things that, that we're seeing that hadn't been seen before was the importance of, of helping teams innovate without multiple layers of decision-making. So people who are, you know, Howard Bihar's a good buddy of mine, uh, and he was one of the founders of of Starbucks, he's one of the two H's, Howard Schultz and Howard Bihar, and then there was an O, Oren Smith, H2O started Starbucks. And Howard Bihar is in the book and, and he says, you know, if you're the person, if you're, if you're the person pushing the broom, you should have a say in buying the broom. And I think you're seeing much more of a, you're closer to the problem, let's listen to your idea first, instead of assume that what was happening all along was what needs to have been, be happening now. And so I saw a lot of brands who have a lot of equity stop worrying about whether or not they were gonna lose the equity and start focusing more on what needed to happen today. And I think you're gonna see that in leadership in a different way than ever before, really. It's like, so what if we did it that way? What do we need to do now? I also think that the realization that a tiny virus, one one thousandth the width of a human hair can disrupt 
huge industries is enough for many of these leaders to say, maybe what we believed kept us safe isn't what's keeping us safe. It's our adaptivity that keeps us safe, not our legacy. As a researcher, I'm sure you went into this with some assumptions. Uh, I mean, that's usually the scientific method. You have a hypothesis and then you go in to prove the hypothesis. I'm not sure if that's how you approach this. Uh, but what surprised you the most coming out of this? Yeah, I didn't really think leaders would get all that transparent. Um, I mean, I, we as leaders talk about being transparent. Authentic leadership has been out there for a long time. You know, Brene Brown has made a living telling us we should all do it, but most people are too scared to really bring the fullness of themselves to work. They don't want to be seen as imperfect. We, we have some issues and leaders have this mantle of responsibility. And we need to, we need to keep working 20 hours a week and you know, 20 hours a day and we can't, you know, we can't stop. I was surprised by how many people kind of took a pause and went, holy buckets, you know, this is the stuff we bought into is just kind of crap. You know, I'm tired of dressing up for every meeting. I want to be natural. I don't see how that adds value. It's a little pretentious. I'm tired of trying to act like I got it all and I have all the answers and I try to answer questions. I don't even know what the answers are just so I don't look stupid. I'm willing to admit that I don't have the answer and have these bright people that work with me help me figure it out. Um, I was surprised. I, I think this just was so humbling uh, to leaders that they actually couldn't fake it anymore. Um, some of them anyway. <laughs> um, for you, top three biggest takeaways from yeah. everyone you talked to. This was a universal blow for all. Different degrees of magnitude. But, you know, I talked to Microsoft and their Teams platform, the guy who's in charge of Teams platform. My gosh, this was an opportunity of untold proportions. But even for them, it was a blow. Uh, they weren't ready to scale it at the level that it was designed. I mean, Zoom, for all of its value now, I think it's wor worth more than the big three automakers. Um, they weren't ready to scale and their security wasn't ready for it in the early days. So what I think the universal blow is, the universal real realization, there's never been a time in my lifetime or probably most of our lifetimes where business was universally affected, number one. Two, I think that these leaders realized that everything is far more fragile and they have far less control than they thought. So if you want to go back to your original point about control and influence, the illusion of control has been pierced. And most of us realize it. I think three is just safety reigns supreme. It normally works in the background, but it reigns supreme. And in your industry, oh my gosh, the, the weight that was posed on them uh, for all of that in terms of the perceptions of what it takes to be safe, which is wholly different than what it really is. Oh, wow. Uh, it's crazy. Well, and, and as we've said repeatedly, and you and I talked about this, is at the beginning of all this, dentistry was tagged as being the most at-risk profession for transmission. Uh, New York Times published it at the beginning of March. And now, uh, not that we're completely on the other side of this, but dentistry is not even on the radar in terms of a, a risky place to be. It is one of the safest places to be. We've always known that. Uh, dentistry is one of the most vigilant, probably more vigilant than most healthcare environments are. Uh, just that dentistry ramped up back in the 80s with HIV, uh, but it's the perception yeah. that is the key.
Well, hopefully my teeth look clean because I, I have no no qualms <laughs> all, at all going getting my teeth clean in the That's middle. Great. So uh, hopefully more people think that way because clearly I have nothing but faith in this industry. So let's talk about the book, Stronger Through Adversity. And you shared some, uh, some of the findings of your research. Uh, tell us the easiest way to get our hands on the book. You can go to, to the website for the book, which is strongerthroughadversity.com. Go figure, stronger through, spelled the, the full way out there, T-H-R-O-U-G-H, uh, strongerthroughadversity.com. And there's a 40% off pre-order offer there. And uh, I'll, you get a signed copy and it's the best pricing deal that's out there. So I would love to have people uh, share it with others who are trying to figure out how to lead in this time and beyond. And release date is? December 15th, 20th, somewhere in there. It's uh, whenever they can get it out to the bookstores. Perfect. So now's the time to get uh, pre-order the copy and you'll be the first one to receive it and get the best, uh, best pricing. And look for Steve's name in there and the w wisdom and insights he shares. I'm in there amongst the, what'd you say, 140? 140, yeah. <laughs> uh, I try to give you as much column width and uh, word count as I possibly could amidst all those others. I love it. Well, one, thank you for uh, including us and thanks for sharing and thanks for doing the research. Uh, I know just the few things that you shared today, plus uh, the hundreds of ideas that are in the book uh, will make all of us better leaders. This is not the last crisis we're going to have to deal with in our lifetimes. And uh, learning the lessons, uh, there is that quote. Uh, it's attributed to a lot of different people, but basically says those who know not history are destined to repeat it. Amen. And uh, certainly there are a lot of lessons to learn from this one. So thank you for doing the research and uh, thank you again for sharing with us today as our mentor. And in the spirit of the Crown Council, we're giving a percentage of these proceeds back to the frontline workers uh, who are out there fighting the good fight for us all. Excellent. Thanks so much, Joseph. Appreciate all your work and uh, for sharing today. Thank you.